It is father with everything we need for Halloween decorating. The Outline World Dispatch. It's Tuesday, October 31st, 2017. I'm Aaron Edwards. Today on The Dispatch. How conversations about sexual harassment miss the mark. And why Democrats are pushing Blue Lives Matter legislation in a strongly liberal state. Here's The Dispatch. Power. In the past few weeks, powerful men who work in media have been exposed as serial sexual harassers. Why did it take so long for these so-called open secrets to be made public? How many women feel unsafe in their workplaces because of these men? Why did they feel like they couldn't come forward until now? These conversations are also being co-opted by commentators who are using the industry-wide reckoning as an opportunity to talk about, well, literally anything else. Gabby Devaya has been covering some of these allegations and the conversations around them. Hi, Gabby. Hi, Aaron. Talk to me about one of the more recent examples of these allegations coming to light and how the conversation got co-opted and changed. So Mark Halperin, who's a political journalist who's been around for several decades, was recently accused by five different women of groping them in the office, rubbing his erection on them. All of, like In one instance, he asked a woman to meet him in his office, and then when she closed the door, he said, sit on my lap, and she she freaked out and didn't know what to do. And she did it because, I mean, again, she didn't know what to do. And apparently it happened several times, and after every time, so she felt ashamed, she was confused, she didn't know what had happened. And a lot of people have turned the Halpern allegations into an opportunity to talk about why you shouldn't have closed-door meetings in your workplace, or why men shouldn't meet with women unless their wife is around, how they should follow the Mike Pence rule of never being alone with a woman who's not your spouse. And I mean, all of this just kind of shifts the conversation and makes it about something else. It's no longer Mark Halperin allegedly harassed and assaulted several women that he worked with, but it is kind of this reframing of the same things that women have been told for decades. And other people have turned this into an opportunity to chastise women for even talking about this. In the wake of the monstrous sexual abuse accusations against Hollywood mogul Harvey Weinstein, many actresses started telling their stories, prompting the hashtag MeToo campaign. A few weeks ago, Emily Rooney, who is the host of a show called Beat the Press, talked about the hashtag MeToo movement and how it makes her uncomfortable that journalists are, quote, making themselves part of the story. It's not that there's anything illegal about it, it's like you're violating some journalistic standard, but the minute you start doing that, you're, you're making yourself the story. And, and I, the entire point of the hashtag was to show people that sexual assault and harassment were pervasive. It wasn't just Harvey Weinstein, it wasn't just Hollywood, but every industry. Which seems to me like it's, it's, it's widening this circle um, well beyond, I think, what, we, what was originally intentioned with Me Too. I mean, the point that Rooney was making was that journalists should be covering this without making themselves a part of the story. But there's pervasive sexual harassment in the media. It's not a coincidence. It doesn't happen every now and then. A couple of weeks ago, after the Weinstein allegations, there was the shitty media men spreadsheet, which was only up for a few hours. It had allegations against dozens of men who work in media, most of them in New York City. So If you're saying that journalists shouldn't be making themselves a part of the story, then you're saying that journalists who have been assaulted or harassed by their colleagues or by their bosses should just be quiet and not talk about it. 
And that's the same thing that people have been saying to victims of sexual assault forever. What this story gets at, at least the story that you're examining, is this idea that people feel compelled to provide what they see as a solution to the problem. It's like, oh, these are happening in closed doors. Let's stop the closed door meetings. Or, you know, this is happening with guys who have big salaries. Maybe we should examine the wage gap. It's like it's a very strange uh, tangential approach to figuring out how to solve these problems as opposed to just tackling it head on and saying this is a case of a man who assaulted a woman and we need to talk about how that person's going to be penalized for it. Yes, absolutely. Uh, a couple of days ago, I saw a person say, it's interesting how all of these people who have allegations of sexual assault against them are also people with dislikable personalities or they're brash, or they're mean, or their politics are bad. And it's like there's no, like people are looking for an explanation aside from men assault women and men assault people who aren't women also, but it's generally men who are doing the harassment and the assaulting. And it's not because of some underlying thing. It's because of the society that we are in, the world that we have created where men have social and political power over women and men are the gatekeepers in a society and men are in charge in the workplace and they create these cultures where open secrets like this are allowed to flourish for decades without anyone feeling comfortable to report it or to do something about it. So I know that we're not the thought police. We can't really change how people are going to react to a lot of these stories. But if we were to think a little bit more critically about how we could respond to these things in a way that centers the right conversations, what do you think that looks like? I think a big part of it is letting the people who are coming forward with their stories take charge and let them decide where the conversation should go. I think centering the narratives of people who have faced this harassment, have faced assault, and have been raped is or should be prioritized over men who say, well, is is this just mean? Is it just gross? Or is it perverted? These are people who are thinking about this rhetorically and dispassionately, and that's not what we should be doing because these are human interactions. You can't look at everything objectively and through a removed and scientific lens. Gabby Del Valle is a staff writer here at The Outline. Gabby, thanks for chatting with me. Thanks, Aaron. Massachusetts Democrats voted last week in favor of a mandatory minimum punishment of a year in prison for striking a police officer. Despite the state's very liberal reputation, the amendment was sponsored by Republican Minority Leader Bruce Tarr. Outline contributor Paul Blessed is here to talk about how a pretty liberal state like Massachusetts let such a regressive measure pass. Hi, Paul. How's it going? Hey, thanks for having me. Of course. Can you talk to me about what this vote was about and what exactly went through the House in Massachusetts? So uh, Massachusetts has been considering a big uh, kind of omnibus criminal justice reform bill, kind of taking on a lot of the the stuff that's that's been in the code for decades. You know, the Massachusetts Democrats control the Senate by a wide majority, um, and they allowed 161 amendments uh, to be put forward, and this is one of them. 
so yeah, this this amendment sort of makes it a crime to strike a police officer uh, and gives a mandatory minimum. So it, it sort of undoes or you know at least undercuts some of the work that was done to pass progressive criminal justice reform in Massachusetts. What kind of actions does this legislation cover and what would the punishment be for someone doing the same thing to a non-cop? So the way that the law is written right now, if you assault a public employee, the mandatory minimum is 90 days um, and the the maximum that you could serve is two and a half years. Uh, This amendment focuses on police officers specifically and sets the mandatory minimum for assault at one year. And is there a precedent to this kind of protection for police? Like what would happen before if you tried to hit a police officer? Um, in, Ma- in Massachusetts, I don't think that there's any precedent for this. Uh, what kind of questions does this actually raise about the state Democrats' commitment to criminal justice reform? So I think that there's going to be a chilling effect on protests. There's a state senator named Jamie Eldridge who voted against the bill that said, you know, pretty much exactly that, that Black Lives Matter protests specifically, that's that's a population that is already marginalized and targeted by the police in a lot of different areas of this country. And something like a simple assault charge, just by attacking a police officer and then introducing these mandatory minimums on top of that, I, I think that sort of takes us back to this like 90s way of looking at criminal justice reform. And, you know, despite all the other good things that are in the bill, I think that it, it sort of shows that, that Democrats aren't willing to go against police unions and other groups that might be trying to shut down protests. And not to be alarmist, but is this effectively a legislation that if it all goes all the way through Massachusetts process could be used, as you're saying, to put protesters in mass in prison under the guise of, you know, they're attacking police officers when they protest or when they have these demonstrations? You know, Massachusetts has a Republican governor. Um, you know, there have been, even in states with Democratic governors and Democratic mayors, there have been, you know, police forces cracking down on protests, especially when there's just the slightest bit of unrest. So I think that they could definitely use this as a way to throw protesters in jail and sort of shut it down on that side. Was this bill pushed through primarily by Bruce Tarr, the Republican minority leader, or did Democrats also support it strongly? So uh, it was it was definitely pushed through by Democrats as well as Republicans uh, because of the big majority that Democrats have in the in the Senate chamber, nothing that the Republicans can propose will will go through unless a majority of Democrats support it. And the first time that this came around, the bill passed 22 to 15. And the second time there was another vote on it and it was 31 to six. So a lot, you know, an overwhelming majority of Democrats voted for it the second time around, at least, and a slim majority voted for it the first time around. It seems like with everything happening on at least the federal level with Trump and a lot of the anxiety around criminal justice in the country right now that Democrats would have an impetus to be a little bit more progressive with the way they vote, especially in a state that already has a very strong liberal hold on it. So what do they actually have to gain with pushing through a measure like this? Yeah, you you would think that. (laughs) Right. But, uh, you know, it's hard to say. I think that, you know, if you look at like sort of the way that criminal justice in this country has been run for, for centuries at this point. Um, you know, the police have always protected people in power. Uh, they will always protected wealth. And I think that that's something that the two parties still share very much today. Does this feed into the narrative of the war on cops that we've heard a lot about? 
I think it definitely provides cover for this argument. And, and one thing that's interesting to me is sort of this debate. Uh, you know, when you hear Democrats talk about this topic, they they talk about the need for reform. Um, you know, but they also say, you know, well, we want to make sure that our police officers are protected. Republicans in other states do not even give them, you know, we need reform. Um, you know, one of the quotes from even Bruce Tarr, who's, you know, the Republican minority leader in Massachusetts, but Massachusetts is a pretty liberal state, uh, said, you know, there's a reason that people are in jail. <laughs> so, you know, there's not that same sort of give and take that Republicans are offering Democrats and Democrats are just sort of ceding a lot of ground on this issue. And what's next for this legislation? So the House of Representatives in Massachusetts has to come up with its own bill. So once the House of Representatives passes its bill, uh, the two chambers will get together and sort of hash out the differences. So this may not make it into the final bill, but it's already cleared one chamber and it's already cleared a chamber that that many people in Massachusetts consider to be the more progressive uh, chamber of the legislature. Um, And if it does make it to the governor's desk, uh, the governor, Charlie Baker, is a Republican. So you can probably bet that, you know, if this is in the final bill, this is probably going to go into law. Paul Bless is a contributing writer here at The Outline. Thanks, Paul. Thanks. That's it for The Dispatch. If you like the show, you can find us in all the usual places. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, everywhere. And while you're out trick-or-treating, you should tell people about this podcast. Spread the joy and spread some candy. Thanks for listening. I'm Aaron Edwards. We'll be back tomorrow.